0: welcome everybody to the stem cell podcast this is episode five parkinson's disease and stem cells i am dr christopher fasano and he is dr yosef Kanat. stem cell podcast back at you buddy what's going on man how's it going chris good to hear your voice again long time no speak how was your uh, halloween man did you have a good halloween
1: it was great i dressed up as
0: mr t dude i saw i saw your pictures you look great (laughs) you look really great he looked awesome for everyone out there he had the hair all done up and the chains it was hot did a nice job mr t from the
1: a team uh one of my favorite childhood shows anyhow so how you how you doing over there
0: things are pretty good man a lot of uh doing a lot of writing right now so uh like bunkering down in the office with the uh computer and trying to get some stuff some good papers some good things all good things just lots of work so we're just trying to bang some stuff out but things are going going well um i'm excited for tonight's show yes we got a really cool show tonight yeah you know i'm excited um so so what we're going to do here tonight, everybody, is we're going to do the show. So the format's traditionally been we go over some papers and then we have somebody on to talk about some sort of topic in the world of science, you know, predominantly stem cell science. Uh, today's episode, we're not going to have a guest. What Yosef and I are going to do is we're going to feature a disease. We're going to talk about Parkinson's disease and we're going to talk about how stem cells can hope to one day combat, cure and Get rid of that disease, and it's something uh, dear to Joseph and I's because we actually do this work every day. So um, we're going to start the same way. Joseph's going to give us a little science roundup, and then we're going to get right into the uh, to the topic at hand tonight. Yo, so come on and take them down the road.
1: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, some news came out actually today uh, that the World Meteor Meteorology uh, Organization said that we are now at three hundred ninety three parts per million CO two. Uh, oh, for the yeah. first time in like 800,000 years. So that happened. <laughs> um, Eight, 800,000 years, yes. It can't that, be good.
0: That can't be a good thing, right?
1: Yeah, that we've had this uh, much carbon in the air. So carbon's a heat-trapping gas. I don't think anybody denies that. Uh, and I think 380 was sort of the don't go past that level, and uh, now we're at 393, so... Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I know, right? <laughs> um, sci- <laughs> scientists um, have found that SARS. Remember SARS, severe upper rep- what was it? Uh, respiratory oh, syndrome. Oh yeah,
0: the SARS. People were wearing masks everywhere you went.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, they found out the the root of it all. It was, was kind of like that movie uh, Contagion. It's <laughs> this this Chinese horseshoe bat. It came from this... Chinese
0: horseshoe bat.
1: Yes. They found out where SARS came from, and it's the Chinese horseshoe bat. And actually, it's kind of similar to MERS, this other Middle Eastern version of SARS that uh, also came from a bat as well. So bats, stay away from them. Those they, bats, man. Bats are never good, right? They kind of look evil, but they're they're, you know...
0: Uh, they intrigue me bats like i want to watch them but at the same time i don't want to be anywhere near bats so there's another reason not to be around bats Uh,
1: yeah it's the whole flying mammal thing with the (laughs) eyes and the i don't know anyhow so um there was a science article on these starburst amacrine cells that are uh you may know about these they're in uh sort of like detection of light um And there's an off state, which is when they're uh, decreased in light, and then uh, on states where these sacs or starburst amacrine cells that's kind of a funny name for them sacs uh, that's how they detect motion. And uh, the study found that was mediated by SEMA 6A and it's uh, plexin receptor plex A2. So I thought that was interesting. The plexins huh. and the semas, semaphore I always
0: see I always see plexins around town, you know, in, in like the world of science. <laughs> so I always see plexins popping up. But I don't really know too much about plexins. I'm not I'm not good with my plexins. I
1: like that name though. It reminds me of suplex. Remember that move in uh yes. wrestling, yeah. the suplex? Yeah, in wrestling, <laughs> I Used to pick him up and slam on. Everybody out there remembers the suplex. <laughs> if you grew up watching uh wrestling as a kid. Um Let's see here. There was a, t- a study that came out. I, it showed that I was listening to a podcast of a guy who was talking about a tenfold increase in retractions, while at the same time, there was a 24% in, uh, increase in publication. So, you know, a quarter more, I, I forget how many, it was like a 10 year period where they had shown, like, a uh, 10 or 20 year period th- that there was a You know, there's just way more retractions now, essentially, uh, than there used to be, and uh, they were saying where the causes of this, and it's a lot of the pressure on PIs, and they said some uh, uh, some insane amount of millions of dollars, like hundreds of millions, are uh, go to PIs who double dip in the idea for grant funding. Oh, yeah, really? yeah, use the same idea for multiple uh funding apparatus and um you know, yeah, wow, that's wh- where was this, Joseph? Uh this was the podcast I was listening to on Science and the City. And wow. yeah, they that's they cool. had these authors who did the meta-analysis of, you know, paper retractions. And this is coming on the heels of that science uh article that we were talking about the investigation on um the journals that basically were yeah 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 you know they didn't do their due science it was a total made up uh submission for publication with horrible controls and but um yeah so it seems to be a problem generally in the field that uh there's just too much pressure to publish and um I don't know. That's sort of the state of things.
0: I mean, you know, this is this is like an interesting thing because I've read I've read about this too. I've also seen um, and uh, kind of understand some of those some of those pressures, like with the grants. And this is, you know, we can talk about this, and I think we should, Joseph, because it's interesting. They changed really the rule, and this is won't get into this. We'll just quickly say they changed the rules with new submissions for grants for the government. So you only get two chances. You know, that's it. So, if you submit if you have an idea and you want to get it funded, you submit a grant, and they you know score it, but not great. you can revise it, but you only get one revision If that doesn't take it's done you can you can't submit it again. The next grant has to be I think it's something like at least fifty one percent different or something crazy uh, uh, and for young investigators who don't have many avenues, right if you close all three, what happens? yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. So that's a cool, that's a cool study. Well, yeah, yeah, out. tenfold increase
1: uh, in retractions it, with a twenty-four percent overall increase in publication of the same period. So that's uh, we're talking about, you know. But anyhow, moving on, there was uh, another study that I want to bring to your attention. There was a paper that came out describing a decrease in anterior cingulate cortex activity um, was associated with, uh, a higher rate of prisoner recidivism or, you know, basically prisoners when they're released from prison, going back into jail, uh, uh, the there was a twofold increase in the amount of prisoners that um, had this decrease in anterior cingulate cortex activity yeah. that correlated with a twice the rate of um, recidivism over four years, which I I thought you know just we should discuss maybe how this can be. This was the first study to do this uh, to show. This sort of you know brain related to essentially prison population dynamics and crime rates, and it's you know you wonder how far this is going to go with the court system and lawyers you know arguing arguing that their client uh, either has this genetic defect, I forget which. Uh, I think it's like a, an NMDA receptor or something. Is uh, oh, so they're a,
0: talking about going that far, where it could like get you out or get you because it's not really your fault. It's like a brain problem. Yeah, there's some receptor that's also
1: been shown in uh, families from violent households. Uh, if you have this, I think it's an AMP or NMDA receptor mutation, where uh, there there's also an increased rate in. Um, in uh, in the bill you know, and going to prison essentially. So these prisoner studies are pretty fascinating because something like I, I forget the stats is some like thirty to fifty uh, percent of all uh, what is it? It's eighty percent of crime are committed by 30, uh, ten to thirty percent of the population, which is right. That,
0: so like the same people commit are committing crime.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like yeah,
0: uh, basically. The fi- they come so that cing- so that's interesting because for everybody out there the you said the cingulate cortex the anterior right? cingulate cortex so the ante- that the cingulate cortex is part of the brain it sits in the uh, middle of what, what we call that cerebral cortex or so that really folded area over the brain uh, and the cingulate cortex I mean dude I'm going back to neuroanatomy but the cingulate cortex is really involved in the limbic system the limbic system is where our, our emotion um, you know memory um, you know, more like emotion processing. So that makes sense if you think about it from that point of view. if That's controlling your emotion, your you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah, limiting. this it's uh, also it this
1: sense. this particular region is also. Um been implicated in like decision making and impulsivity and so it, it fits a, a theory you know a, a dogma or a, the neuropathology and the you know the neuroscience of it all but it's 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 sort of you you're like okay so say somebody killed your mother who had this defect would you feel any different Oh, you know, it's like, uh, so you wonder how the law is going to take it. And, you know, there, uh, some lawyers are doing, presenting this to judges as a, not necessarily a defense, but asking for leniency at, uh, you know, at, at at sentencing and, uh, something like this, uh, recidivism study is pretty compelling and I'm sure we'll see more of it in the future.
0: No, it's very, very interesting.
1: Speaking of genes and, um, the brain. Uh, there's a guy named Jonathan Rothberg. He uh, sold the company 454. Remember them, the sequencing yep. company? Mm-hmm. He he's sold a couple of companies. He's a really smart guy. He's uh, looking for the math genius gene. It's called Project Einstein. And he's going to sequence, the Chinese are doing a similar study with like 1,700 people. He's choosing 400 geniuses in math and you know science i guess and like he's going to sequence their genome and try and figure out what makes gives them the the intelligence and he pretty much doesn't care what people think in terms of like the implications and they think he's self-funding it because you know he's worth like at least 200 mil so Wow.
0: wow that's wow
1: yeah i thought it was pretty interesting that uh he's just like yeah i'm gonna do it I don't care what you think, and huh. there's a lot of people who support, you know, finding the genius gene. And uh, I- I'm at least curious, but I know there's a lot of uh, ethical baggage that comes with defining things. Trying to figure out what, yeah.
0: what makes people smart, yeah, yeah, people smart. Yeah.
1: yeah, you know, the whole uh, what was the phrenology and the eugenics and all these sort of things—they could get out of hand if you let them. You know, people were measuring skulls in Nazi days and stuff, and trying to justify slavery with uh, the physiognomy and phrenology, which is the—I love those. I actually have one of them—the the, the maps of the brain that people thought uh, were associated with certain characteristics and. Um, the shapes of one 's skull now that 's just crazy, but there are certain regions of the brain that uh controls uh things but anyhow i, I you could see how this could get out of hand is is my point
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, um, but uh i 'm all for it if we, you could find the the math genius gene um moving on uh there was uh a, a guy named Larson from the Scripps uh Institute is using. Benzotropine, uh, which is an M1, M3 acetylcholine receptor blocker, uh, from a screen they did of a hundred thousand different, uh, FDA approved chemicals, uh, mm-hmm. to increase oligo precursor cells. And this is an FDA-approved drug, so it's it's, yeah, yeah. OPCs, and that's relevant for uh, myelin-producing cells, are relevant for multiple sclerosis, uh, which is an autoimmune disease where those cells are essentially attacked by your own body, and that uh, insulation, which is sort of like the copper wiring the rubber wire you know exterior of a copper wire when that rubber wire goes away uh, the you, your brain doesn't move as fast essentially cuz the electrical signal is no longer as conducted so that's interesting so they
0: found they found this it's a small molecule you said
1: it's uh it's called benztropine benztropine cool yeah yeah it's a m1 m3 uh, acetylcholine. Do you say acetyl or acetyl?
0: I say acetylcholine. People say acetylcholine. So acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that's released that makes the muscles contract. Right?
1: Yes. It's is also the acetylcholine innervation. Uh, if you look at that system, it is so you know extensive in the brain. It's really amazing how big uh, the whole system is. But yes, in the in the muscle, it's also used for muscle contraction as well. It's it's all over the place, acetylcholine. Yeah, it is. Um it's one that it's similar to one of the um neurotransmitters we'll talk about today, uh dopamine. Dopamine. Uh, yeah, right. the, exactly. the cholinergic neuron system. Um so anyhow, uh there was another study um in molecular psychiatry showing that serotonin two C receptor a- and ta- uh, that a serotonin 2C receptor antagonist can act faster than ketamine and scop- scopoli- sc- ah, scopolamine. <laughs> it's S-C-O-P-O. It sounds, it, sounds yes. like an,
0: it sounds like an Italian. Uh, Scopo. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And, and this is another one, uh, another M1, uh, receptor, um, mediated, um, the scopolamine is, uh, antidepressant. So it's interesting, um, that this antagonist can, you know, working through serotonin to C uh, can act faster than ketamine, which was showing some promise actually, uh, in some of these depression studies,
0: but um, so that's interesting because like, you know, it's you know amazing, man. And yeah. I don't know. I don't really know the literature very much around the disease of depression, but I feel like we don't really know a lot, but we know a lot. You know what I'm saying? At least Is with the right? serotonin,
1: with the SSRIs, they they help a lot of people, and they increase serotonin by blocking the recycling of serotonin. The selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors keeps they, it in
0: the synapse longer, so you get a better signal. Yeah,
1: it's sort of like how cocaine works. It, it blocks mm. dopamine blocks transport. Yeah, so it's sort of like leaving out the the trash for a while. Anyhow, <laughs> so, um, that besides that. Um, it's just amazing that like uh, this SSRIs, they take a while to work, and you have to be very careful with how you prescribe or change one's meds, right? Because right. they, you could take somebody off, and it takes three weeks, four weeks for it to like really be effective. So. Doctors are more, you know, MDs are more, clinicians are more keenly aware of this than you and I. But like, it's it's interesting that you have something that can act even faster than these newer forms. So I, I thought that was interesting uh,
0: study, and it's in molecular psychiatry. There's another neurotransmitter for you. So we talked about acetylcholine. Yep. Serotonin, and we'll get to dopamine. Yeah, that's nice.
1: Um, one thing I want to tell you about this uh, big brain initiative in U- mm-hmm. ULIC, Germany. Uh, that's with a J, ULIC, uh, Germany. And it's uh, involving 7,000, over 7,000 slices to create this 3D high resolution map of the b- human brain. Wow. Yeah, which is, and you know, you know more about the Allen Brain Institute than me, and I, I love that website but this one i got access to and it's really really cool so i recommend the big brain initiative i like that Big
0: brain initiative i like that
1: yeah and uh i just want to alert the audience to some uh papers out there involving interneurons from uh scott baraband's group uh in nature neuro describing um the generation of human uh, interneurons from human embryonic stem cells and the implantation into the cortex and hippocampus and uh suchen zhang's group has uh, uh done some similar exciting work in uh nature biotechnology uh describing um a cure uh, uh, curative model for um mesiotemporal. Do you say mesio or mesio? I say mesio uh, I say mesio. Mesio, okay. Mesiotemporal epilepsy. I don't know though, yeah. Mesiotemporal epilepsy. So um inner neurons are sort of like the brake cells. So you have excitatory neurons and then you have inner neurons, which are inhibitory generally. And they uh are useful for things like epilepsy, where you have too much neuronal activity. They could act as neuronal breaks. Uh, so, inner neurons. Slow it down. Yeah. yeah inner neurons are uh, just as important as the excitatory ones. And there's that nice balance. It's the sort of yin and the yang of the brain. And um, it's a big field. And um, generating them from human embryonic stem cells, we, we will definitely get to in the future.
0: Yeah, we will for sure.
1: Yes, so um, I don't know. I think uh, that's a good science roundup. I could
0: talk more, but um, I think no, we... that's good. Let's but let's uh, let's get everyone here into the world of stem cells now because I think we got a lot to talk about, man. I really want to make sure we talk about a lot of different things. So before we um, uh, go there, Yos, uh, just a quick. Uh, thank you to everyone out there for following us here again. We're at stem cell podcast on Twitter and what we're stem cell podcast at gmail.com. Is that right? Yos. Yep. That's right. So you guys can like, you know, get at us, let us know what's good, what's not, what you want to hear or any comments. We just got some great ones. We really appreciate the feedback.
1: Yeah. Especially, uh, we, on the Facebook page, we've gotten some really great feedback too. So, uh, Feel free right. to yeah add some some more on iTunes because that really helps get us out
0: there. So uh, spread the word. So Parkinson's disease. So we're gonna we're gonna focus the rest of our time here on talking about this disease and talking about really the crux of it, Joseph. Really for everyone there. This is a podcast, and we are stem cell scientists. So we're gonna put a focus on how stem cells are gonna be relevant. And, you know, curing this disease. So um, just for full disclosure, Joseph and I both um, are in this field. So we're, we're actively researching the disease. And uh, therapies, or we hope to be therapies of, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how our work kind of fits in. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Yosef. Yeah, I guess it's 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 a def- little.
1: it's definitely good to give a little brief history of Parkinson's, and um, it's named after James Parkinson, who in the eighteen early eighteen hundreds really characterized a lot of the cardinal features of the disease, at least from an exterior as a clinician. You know, without uh, modern day microscopy, so um, he basically Parkinson's disease is caused by a loss of dopamine neurons. Uh, the The cardinal features um, are these Lewy bodies at a microscopic level, but um, in terms of behavior, uh, are the slowness of movement. Uh, I think the 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 person who best uh, signifies the disease is uh muhammad ali if you've seen him lately he sort of you know embodied embodies the dis- the later stages of the disease that's sort of shuffling gait and um right they have face. a rest
0: they have some of them a lot of the a lot of patients have resting tremors yes you know, they'll be sitting and their arm will just kind of continually be moving um and that can get you know eventually you gets a little bit stronger and makes the yeah this kinetic and yeah yeah and um the the
1: so the loss of dopamine neurons, which come from a region uh, deep within the brain, about ear level, and uh, right in the inside, the deepest part of your brain, essentially... Um, is uh, this small population, less than a million neurons uh, that have this black pigmentation to them. And they, uh, that's why it's called the substantia nigra, where they live. Nigra for black and, um, so, or black substance. And uh, so they have this distinct architecture in the brain. And uh, when they die off, uh, especially on the more lateral sides of of the substantia nigra, um, you get a loss of movement because these neurons project all the way to the caudate putamen, uh, which is part, all part of the basal ganglia. And uh, essentially, when these cells die off from the a9 region or substantia nigra pars compacta. So, uh this is two regions deep within the brain uh which I'm going to just We're going to get a little science heavy, but uh, there's A10, which is the VTA, which is part of the limbic system that uh, Chris was talking about earlier. And then there's A9, which is lateral. Uh, So it sort of looks like if it it, it looks the substantia nigra, if you were to make a slice down, uh, you know, straight down your face. The substantia nigra, if you look deep within the brain, looks like a, sort of like a seagull in flight. And the wings are the A9, A9 region. And um, that, that A9 region is what is um, more severely affected in the disease and that loss of those a9 uh, neurons uh dopamine neurons are the ones that result in the slowness in movement and there are other aspects of the disease but the 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 one that patients really complain about the most uh besides you know depression and sometimes even hallucinations and stuff like that are the loss of movement and
0: so, right so uh so basically so let me just kind of like uh, re uh, say that so basically there is a, a region of the brain right we said the nigra the substantial nigra in the bottom part of the brain really and it sends its long neuron axons all the way up to this one area uh and kind of dumps dopamine there it's dumping it and the dump of dopamine is allowing us to move and do stuff so right yo know, says so they die off uh, those specific neurons you lose dopamine in that region, and therefore you lose the ability to move, you know, coherently, like steadily uh, until basically the majority of them are gone. And I think, Joseph, right, it takes a lot of them to die before you start seeing clinical symptoms. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's part of the, yeah. So uh, about half of the neurons of a normal, healthy person of that age uh, are missing in a person who has the symptoms. So uh, almost half of them are gone essentially, by the time you're diagnosed. Um, So that's a problem. And there are a lot of uh, preclinical symptoms that I'm going to talk about um, that correlate with the disease. And we're learning more and more. Um, And actually, James Parkinson was kind of picked up most of them. Um, But uh, so anyhow, uh, the, the in that globus at the in the basal ganglia sy- system the release of dopamine which is more towards going towards your nose. From deep within by ear level, that dopamine release in the caudate putamen is forward. So the innervation moves towards the front of the brain, releases the dopamine, and causes a very complex system that I'm not going to get into. But essentially, uh, there was there are these receptors for the dopamine. And... Um, D, D2, D1, and uh, these dopamine receptors, the, the theory that went along with them were the direct pathway and the indirect pathway. And it was long thought that the direct pathway was sort of the on switch that initiated movement in response to the dopamine release. So that's the D1 receptor-mediated direct pathway. Okay, And then there was the indirect pathway that was sort of the brakes on it, the D2 mediated a different dopamine receptor. So it was long thought that it was sort of like movement involved these two on and off switches, the indirect and direct pathway. And a recent optogenetics study in Nature this year sort of threw that off uh, its rocker, uh, the indirect pathway is more involved, uh, than we thought in the initiation of movement. So it's very complicated, but I have to, you know, give uh, due diligence and mention the direct and indirect pathway.
0: The direct, the direct, sorry, the most confusing things I've ever learned. Yeah. The direct, Yeah. In it's, neuroscience. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, for everybody out there listening, they're like, what the hell that just happened? Um, <laughs> It, I, I still feel that way I still when it, when I remember I remember the diagrams of it I remember drawing them in my notebook like I can't figure what, what's the positive it's like inhibiting an inhibitory circuit Yes, it's a positive
1: circuit yes because it goes from the globus pallidus to um, the subthalamic nucleus geez. and then all the way up to the cortex the thalamus is involved
0: so, so which so so this is a good point though for everybody there just to understand how, how crazy this disease is so you hear how complicated we're talking about all these different systems and different things but it's one set of neurons yes. that die, and it's one. a
1: very small population. Like relative to uh, the brain, it's uh, the equivalent. If you had a hundred thousand dollars, we're talking about one dollar, okay? In scale wise, so this is a very small population that is responsible for a lot. Of movement and that's probably why it's deep within the brain I mean it's and and it has this we actually don't know what the neuromelanin is really all about um,
0: that's the pigment the neuromelanin. Yeah. that's that's what makes it black yes so yeah right yeah
1: there's anyhow so um you have the direct indirect pathway but I, both of them are essentially not being activated because the dopamine is no longer being released there so one of the uh, ways that um Parkinson's patients are treated are with L-dopa or levodopa, which is uh, a precursor to dopamine. And the the body's able to turn this L-dopa in to compensate for the loss of dopamine. So uh, that was a huge discovery in the 60s by Carlson. Um, and it, it, it earned him the Nobel Prize, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that therapy is, it, it's, it's given like, that's actually what causes the twitches in uh, Michael J. Somebody such as Michael J. Fox uh, is actually the medication uh, that's causing that. Because the body, although it gains movement, it doesn't really processes, uh, process it um, as, as it normally would, obviously, because the loss of wiring is not there. Uh,
0: Right. So basically you're just just taking this uh, drug, this precursor, if you will, and it's just making, it's just like, you know, bursting in dopamine.
1: Yes. It's it's sort of like the precursor. It's like filling up the tank and it's systemic. And, um, but the, so there's side effects to increasing, uh, yeah. And, um, one other way of, uh, this is where stem cells come into play of, uh, curing or providing therapy is to uh, implant dopamine uh, neurons into the region where they project to. So not deep within the brain by your ear, but in in the caudate putamen to where they project. And uh, this has been shown to provide therapy in tons of animal studies, and more recently in the 90s with some uh, fetal tissue grafting into patients. Um, and we should maybe talk about that. What do you, th- what do you say? So, Josh? well,
0: this, so well, this is this is uh, what we call cell replacement therapy, right, Yosef? I mean, this is one of the major branches for stem cells. If people out there want to know how stem cells are going to help any disease, one of the one of the main options is typically cell replacement therapy, which means you replace the bad ones, the bad cells, with good, right? So, yeah, as Yosef was just talking about, and we mentioned Parkinson's disease such a s such a specific, unique, small set of cells, it's very possible to just replace that because you know exactly what they are, where they are, where they go. And so all you would do, like Yosef just said, is remake them and put them where they go. So they wouldn't have to go there. They just put them there. They just start releasing the which is
1: op- which is good news because you're not having to recreate cyto architecture that is you know goes on through the developmental stages when the brain is way more plastic and uh, you know it, to try and do that in an 85 year old patient is uh, I, I don't you know without the without having molecular lubricants like PSA and CAM uh, I don't really see how it's sort of like you know it's just too crowded in there <laughs> it's like a dense forest times 10 <laughs> i mean yeah no so uh if you just sort of drop these cells into the region where they naturally project they start producing dopamine and creating synapses and um can provide local dopamine as opposed to systemic dopamine release and um the, the fetal grafts have had uh, a mixed record, as we should say. I mean, um, right? So they've so been me, well let just tolerated. Quick, let,
0: me just, <clears throat> let me just quickly say what, what this means, these fetal transplants. So that the idea that you can replace cells, these dying neurons with better ones, started with bef- really, I wouldn't say before Yosef, but before really the world of stem cells is really about this. But they knew knew that in a fetus or in a fetal brain, there are young cells, like stem cells we know now, that can make these neurons. So they took – they went in to young fetal tissue from abortion – they got cells from a region of the brain that will make those dopamine neurons. And then they transplanted them into patients, hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, there were different studies. They were in Lund. They were in They were in Colorado.
1: There's over 300 um, patients. And I think one of the major aspects of uh, those that we learned is that um, the right amount of immunosuppression is key. And it should be standardized because it turns out to be one of the major f- variables in analyzing analyzing the data. Um so,
0: so right there. So that so what you, so immunosuppression. So that brings up this what so fetal transplants. We got good things. People got better, right? There were some people that improved, some people didn't, you know, but there was it was good. The problem, A it comes from a fetus, and B I mean, which is obviously a major problem, right? Yeah, and
1: you can't B, just go buy one, no, and then, you know no. it's like, and,
0: and, and B, it's not my, it's not my genes. That's not me. So, which means my body's going to reject those cells because it doesn't know it. So, I have to be immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. Basically, you're yeah. you're telling your immune system to just chill out. You know, like don't worry about these foreign invading cells we're putting into your body. You know, yeah. which obviously is not a good thing, but it's the only way they would take or stay. Yeah. So that's what Yosef's saying is what they found is that 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 that, that regime that, that that kind of treatment has to be optimal for order for to get good cell survival.
1: So over 300 people in the world have received this. And actually, uh, the Europeans are starting a new initiative, um, to do this again. So, uh, that's exciting. Um, but again, it's, it's sort of a scalability issue. Uh, you can't just readily get this tissue. It has to be donated. There's obviously the, uh, Catholic Church and other, uh, bioethical issues, uh, with doing these, uh, surgeries and, um, and then right right around there, Yosef was the base. Well, it was the, the mid '90s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was great because human embryonic stem cells came online uh, through Jamie Thompson. Um, when was that? In the late '90s.
0: So I think it was around the. That was right then, around mid '90s. They were doing those mouse embryonic stem cells. Uh, Ron McKay at the NIH. That was where Loren Studer was, and they were showing for the first time they can make a transplantable set of dopamine neurons from embryonic stem cells, these were mouse that you can implant in an animal and and have a potential source besides fetal, yeah. um, of dopaminergic neurons for transplantation. And that kind of started the the stem cell and Parkinson's boom.
1: Yeah. And it's actually, you don't actually need that many of these cells to, uh, have an effect. So we should talk about how we as scientists model the disease. Um, one way is through uh, mice that, or rodents, uh, rats that have uh, hemiparkinsonian lesioning, uh, where we essentially use a, a dopamine analog that's a toxin that produces these free radicals and kills off uh, dopamine neurons. It's called six hydroxy dopamine, and uh, when the cells take them up, they essentially die, the dopamine neurons. So we can remove them or You know, kill them off uh, on one side of the animal's brain and then it can, it will start to rotate. And uh, there are these really fascinating uh, or dramatic videos of uh, mice rotating after uh, on their own or when delivered amphetamine. Um, And so we could score, say, five rotations per minute or six rotations per minute, 10 rotations per minute. And then um, we can then deliver dopamine neurons from stem cells into the same region where those, uh, neurons were killed off and see a complete recovery. Sometimes the animals will rotate in the opposite direction. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, uh, powerful model, I think, for the motor aspects of the disease. So it's very crude, but, uh, something you could score and, um, there are all sorts of other fine motor movements that people uh, work with. Uh, we should also talk about the monkey models, which deal with the MPTP, which was this drug discovered by Bill Langston uh, to cause Parkinson's in uh, these patients in the 80s that actually were taking a designer drug, which they thought was China White, and it wound up giving them Parkinson's. And he sort of cracked the the clue, uh, the puzzle as to why these 20-year-olds were coming into his office with Parkinson's. Yeah, that's a crazy story, everyone. Yes. I mean... Uh.
0: Uh, (laughs) yeah, the case (laughs) of
1: the, the case of the frozen patients is a great book. That's what if you, that's what it is. Yes. The case
0: of the frozen patients. It's a great, great book. Everyone it's It's,
1: a a great read. It's a great read. And, uh, Bill Langston is one of my heroes in science and just a really nice guy. I had the pleasure of, uh, having dinner and, um, with him and his wife in uh Bellagio Italy for the neuro stem cell conference and uh well, that's
0: I, a lovely place that's a lovely place to have dinner with a man like that that's uh, awesome oh there.
1: man right on lake como uh the oh, place it's is like there. yeah the swiss alps in the background it's just a very special place that's where uh, Padma got married to Luke Skywalker's dad or something and, <laughs> and uh that's where they filmed that scene that palatial uh it's just beautiful there anyhow so um, um, where was, where was uh, so he discovered? And, uh, that-
0: so we were talking about the models. There's the six hydroxy dopamine, which selectively kills off dopaminergic neurons, and the MPTP that just is this drug that causes these Parkinson's-like symptoms.
1: Yes, so MPTP doesn't really work out so well in rodents, but it works really well in primates and humans, unfortunately. And, um, so that's one way of modeling it in monkeys. I don't do monkey research, but, um, I, uh, I definitely do, uh, rodent research and hopefully that doesn't offend anybody, but, um, we are very careful in our protocols and making sure that the animals, uh, do not feel pain, uh, when we're doing these procedures and, um, we do, uh, really work hard to make sure that uh, they are taken care of. And um, sort of like I have to say, but if you want to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs. And unfortunately, that's, that's part of doing uh, this research and uh, determining the safety and the efficacy of stem cell-derived dopamine neurons.
0: So exactly right there. So what you had now, everybody, is you knew a certain set of cells are dying. So let's try to make them. So we can get them from fetal... Or aborted tissue, which is not really the best option. Now, in the mid '90s or going into the later '90s, you, you, you can make them from mouse mouse ESLs cells and and human ES cells. Yep, and then human ES cells, like Joseph said, just comes comes along, and now you can make them from human ES. So now we have a human source of what we thought or what we what appeared to be the genuine midbrain dopaminergic neurons that are dying in Parkinson's. Uh, and yo, so why don't you pick up the story from this point? I guess.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I really find the uh, evolution from where human ES cells. Because let's be honest, it, we weren't. We can make them, but we weren't very efficient at it. It was about five to ten percent, even the best protocols of the graft uh turned out to be the dopamine neurons. There were all other sorts of neurons when we engrafted them into uh animals that were not the dopamine producing neurons. They were serotonergic or other So you know, so
0: what the protocol, the recipe wasn't really optimized on how to make these neurons.
1: Yes, and that's sort of the progression. A lot of it, which happened in Lorenz Studer's lab, uh, was essentially uh, uh, Chambers et al., which described a dual SMAD, this pathway, SMAD, uh, pathway that if you block both ends of it, uh, you can uh, induce neural, neural induction, and, uh, so it, it sort of went from chambers at all protocol, of making neurons in general, neural tissue, to, uh, Floor plate-based model, which Chris Fasano, uh, Dr. Fasano here, uh, really well characterized by the um, early and enhan- super sonic edition, a more modified uh, recombinant protein, a signaling molecule called sonic hedgehog, which we've mentioned in the past, by delivering a more potent version of sonic hedgehog at a very early stage, uh, sh- j- just basically shortly after neural induction. Um, um, you can generate floor floor plate. And, uh, that, that was the, when, when did your paper come out and sell stem cell?
0: That was, uh, 2010,
1: Yes. And uh, then a year later uh, out that of... That paper came out. A year later out of uh, Lorenz's lab again um, came uh, Crix et al. Uh, with J. Washim. Uh, they were, they uh, essentially, two postdocs in our lab, described uh, the addition of CHEER, which is this GSK3 beta antagonist, is essentially turned on this one missing signal uh, called wind signaling. And uh, by activating that with the sonic, we were Able to increase our rates from 5 to 10% to 50 to 60% and getting phenotypes of these FOXA2. Uh, TH uh, positive cells, which in in, uh, our field are the two markers uh, that are required for uh, the midbrain dopamine phenotype, uh, FOXA2 and tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the enzyme that uh, produces dopamine. So uh, this transcription factor, FOXA2, uh, turned out to be one of the key missing elements. And by combining Chambers et al. with Fasano et al. and Crix et al., you get uh, efficient dopamine neuron uh, generation
0: from human embryonic stem cells, and that's sort of where we're at right now. Right. So what? So what you have uh, out there now is what we think. We think it's. Th- we think it's the closest to what's inside of our brain right now. Uh, and and with that, that we hope that that's what we can take into a clinic for some sort of transplantation therapy.
1: Yes, and they do provide therapy in the mouse model. I have personally uh, done. Those studies as well as in uh, the mouse, I mean, the rat and uh, m- most importantly, uh, with our collaborators at Chicago and um, at Rush University, the Cordova lab uh, in monkeys as well. Uh, so, which is
0: which is which is amazing. Yes,
1: because uh, that's sort of. I mean, Malin Parmar's group uh, was uh, around the same time working uh, with the cheer. The I mean, the wind activation as well. But I think what uh, really brought that study together was the monkey data. So um, these uh, these cells survive and implant well, and um, we we think uh, in terms of. The feel for parkinson 's uh, this this has a lot of potential it 's a lot better than it was looking before for, at least from the human embryonic stem cell side, I should also mention uh, while we're talking about therapies for Parkinson's, uh, that's come online as of recent is uh, deep brain stimulation. Because uh, when these dopamine, when that circuitry goes away, uh, you have what's called an overactive uh, subthalamic nucleus, and uh, if you can tamp that down, with uh, Arnold Kriegstein's group has shown uh, with interneurons or with uh, something. like like deep brain stimulation, um, you can sort of calm the system down b- because it seems like if it were overactive, uh, you would be hyperactive, but it's the opposite as is with a lot of things in the brain. But, um, yeah, so it, deep
0: brain stimulation is not a stem cell therapy. Just so everybody's clear. Yes, it's implanting it's like, it's- electrodes. Yeah, they basically go in and they fry some of your circuitry. They like kind of they kind of like, you know, recircuit it, kind of reroute it, well, it, frying off.
1: You could turn it on or you could excite or decrease depending on the setting.
0: So, uh, I've actually uh, seen I've actually seen those surgeries when I was in uh, graduate school. Uh, the, there, it was a uh, a researcher there studying schizophrenia and Parkinson's, and he was an MD. And he would do these, and I got to go in and observe it. It's wild. It's nice. so wild because nice. the patient is awake, you know. Wow, because they have to monitor it as they're advancing this into their brain. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It's, you it, is, it, is effective, it is effective in the later stages of Parkinson's disease. It does help. Yes. So uh, that that's the state
1: of a lot of uh, aspects of the disease. I should also mention that there's a lot of genetics coming online. Nine out of 10 times, though, we do not know what is causing the disease, the etiology of the disease. We, uh, But it appears about 10% of the cases are a genetic. Uh, there are all sorts of mutations, LARC2 being the major one, but... But I think one thing that characterizes uh, Parkinson's disease is something that, again, Bill Langston uh, has been uh, a pioneer in and in is that it's essentially a chronic synucleopathy disease. These uh, synuclein aggregates that uh, form these, at the end of the, Lewy bodies uh, are these, um, deposits that show up in the neurons before they die off. And, um, the pathology of synuclein accumulation, uh, in, uh, neurons before they die off is one of the most common themes in Parkinson's disease. And, uh, Now, there's all sorts of alternative uh, theories coming online uh, dealing with these uh, synuclein aggregates and um, including the enteric system being uh, affected uh, before anything else. Uh, So one thing that even James Parkinson noted, uh, which we now know, is uh, that Parkinson's patients have a lot of uh, trouble with constipation. And bowel movements and uh, IRB, uh, all sorts of gastrointestinal problems are common in Parkinson's disease. Another strange mystery uh, sense of smell goes away, which is also the uh, dopamine neurons are within uh, the the nose and um, they appear to be affected as well. Um, And there's this weird one that's sort of off the mark called RBD, uh, REM sleep. Uh, behavior disorder, which about half of the people who have this like forty to forty five percent get parkinson 's uh so this this disorder is like when you can 't tell between dreaming and reality and it's really bad some people like wind up beating their wives in their sleeps because like they think they're fighting in a dream and uh it's it's just this strange correlation uh with parkinson's um, hmm. yeah and uh there's Um, also smokers have a lower rate of Parkinson's disease. And, uh, that's interesting because the dopamine neurons also have, uh, nicotine receptors, um, expressed on them. And, um, So there's a, obviously don't smoke cigarettes, uh, to avoid Parkinson's because you'll probably die of something like lung cancer or hypertension or heart disease, but, but it is a curiosity and there's some, you know, uh, given that the nicotinic receptors are there. Um, that's interesting. Um, and there's also the, uh, innervation of the heart, uh, is uh, there's evidence that EKGs could, uh, detect early stages as well. Um, because the dopamine innervation of the heart, um, uh, is known to be decreased in uh, Parkinson's patients. So there's these ideas, including the Brock yep. hypothesis, that the disease starts sort of from the bottom up and moves its way up into the brain. And that, um, there's, there's multiple lines of evidence. It's called the Brock hypothesis, uh, B-R-A-A-K, the, after the uh, guy d- described it. And um, it's interesting how things like... Actually, from my study, which I should briefly give a description of, uh, we used embryonic stem cells that turned green at various stages of the dopamine neuron differentiation and then used cell sorting technology to purify cells uh, that were at the early neuron stage, the early dopamine neuron stage, or the mature dopamine neuron stage. And by using the sorting technology, we were able to purify the cells and compare them to the uh, GFP or green fluorescent uh, protein, the reporter to the ones that didn't have the reporter and look at what made uh, the GFP positive cells that were dopamine uh, different from the ones that weren't or compare them, uh, the mature dopamine neurons to the, you know, mid aged dopamine neurons or the mid age dopamine neurons to the early neural stage. So, um, it was a three line study. And one of the genes besides the nicotinic receptor, uh, that came out was this gene Gucci Tusi or guanolin cyclase, uh, which another group recently in science showed that, uh, the knockout of this gene, which is, expressed in the gut mainly... And we should talk about the gut, the enteric system, because uh, did you know this, Chris? Half of your dopamine and ninety percent of your serotonin is produced in the gut. It's a, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, really? it's often called the second brain, um, just because it's you know it could survive by itself if you cut off the vagus. It's like this this anyhow. So we don't really know much about the gut and the innervation, uh, but it's interesting that this gut receptor is a expressed by. Uh, midbrain dopamine neurons in the brain. And um, we don't really know why, but the science article, uh, Gong et al., I think it was 2011 or 2012, uh, really showed nicely that if you knock this gene out from, uh, the dopamine neurons and in, in the mouse, uh, they, they're more hyperactive. So there's this weird connection, uh, with this Gucci2C gene and actually colo and the colon because it's mainly expressed in the colon and, uh, reacts to, uh, bacteria and produces, um, Essentially, fluid into your colon and the opposite, essentially, diarrhea. So, remember before I said that Parkinson's patients had the opposite of diarrhea, they have constipation. So, there's this weird gut brain connection that I don't really understand yet. I'm still trying to hash it out. Like, for instance, this marker gucci Tusi, is over uh, expressed in colon cancer and, uh, Parkinson's patients have a lower rate of colon cancer, so I don't know what's going on with this gut-brain connection, but it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had to bring that up. That and the smoking. Well, so, so are...
0: I mean, I've heard that. Yo, know, I've actually read a lot of this Brock hypothesis. It's very interesting. Um, it makes sense too when you really see it. I think they say a lot of cases can be explained by this hypothesis. You know, but. For 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 the for a summary purpose right now, I think, what we can say is that um, for everybody out this selective cell that dies, um, we know where it is, we know that it dies, but we don't know why it dies. There's a lot of these hypotheses and these, um, like Yosef said, there's a genetic component, but the majority is not. There's environment, there's all these different hypotheses out there that suggest, and with stem cells, we can make those cells. We can make the right ones, and those cells can... Basically, restore function, um, and so we're 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 pretty close, uh, and, and, and I shouldn't say pretty close to a cure, but we're pretty close to a technology that should lead us in down that road. You know, definitely. And we talked about the cell replacement side, where we replace the bad with good. Um, and I think quickly, Yosef, we should talk about the other avenue that stem cell derived dopamine neurons can help us with in understanding how the disease is forming using this IPA as as well as drug screening. Um, you know, trying to develop drugs.
1: Yeah. The IPS technology is uh, really the future drug discovery for sure, because we can take uh, skin cells from patients who uh, have maybe a genetic form or not, and actually screen for drugs that can protect the dopamine neurons described uh, derived from That reprogram skin cell. So uh, now with IPS cells, we talked about this before. We can create stem cell sources from virtually anybody, from the uh, an adult, and um, make dopamine neurons from those cells. Uh, And then uh, essentially, you know, you can test or drug screen for um, drugs that protect the. The neurons now modeling Parkinson's in the dish is not easy, and uh, there's all sorts of genetic manipulations involving things like progeria, which is that Benjamin opposite of Benjamin Button looking. uh, he is like causes early aging, um, and uh, or is that the Benjamin Button? I forget. Anyhow, um, that that artificial aging or stressors. like We know certain things like MPTP kills off the neurons. There's another uh, molecule called CCCP uh, that the Isaacson group has shown uh, to, to induce damage to neurons in a dish. But uh, modeling Parkinson's in the dish is going to be uh, a major thing because you could do these massive screens of FDA-approved drugs in uh, these small uh, dishes. And um, once we figure out the proper way to model the disease, I think it's going to be revolutionary, especially with IPS technology.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, think about it, everybody. We could take any patient's skin cell, turn it back, and then you know, ASL and then right back to the dopaminergic. And now, Joseph, and this is a whole other story. This is not my... My cup of tea, if you will. But people can take skin and turn it directly into a dopaminergic neuron directly. That's yeah, called the IN technology, induced yes neuron. State. Yeah, I, it's yeah, sort of skipping uh, induced, the induced yes. neuron. Yeah, they just they just go straight from skin to neuron rather than around the clock. And so they're trying to characterize whether or not those are actually you know real and functioning. The, the point is we have cells uh, that will work. And that will be able to model the disease. Uh, so we're going to be—we're pretty close. We're closer I, I, than we ever have I, been I, understanding I, this thing. I think the going model is that one day
1: we'll be able to take a skin biopsy from a patient and turn it into a stem cell line, so that uh, their body will not reject the neurons that come from it. We make the dopamine neurons and we purify them. Uh, because you don't want to add stem cells or any other uh, cell type, uh, interneurons or serotonergic neurons. You want the dopamine neurons. And with cell sorting technology, that's uh, definitely possible, as long as we have a surface marker or some unique binding uh, protein and uh, purify them and deliver them with very little immune rejection. And you don't need many of these cells; under a million uh, would suffice. Uh, and in the stem cell world, that's not much at all. So um, right, that- and,
0: and, and we talked about that immunosuppression therapy previous, right? We remember we said that because it doesn't come from you, your body will reject it. Yeah. So, so you don't have that rejection. Yeah. Uh, but there was just that paper that showed that we talked about, it, I think, last time, right? Joseph put the monkeys, where they put made IPS cells for monkeys and put it back into the same monkey. They yeah. used dopamine neurons and yes. all that. Yes.
1: Yes. And we should also mention that um, the the disease, there's various reports that um, the disease could uh, spread to the transplanted tissue. Uh, the jury's still out, but oh, there yeah, have yeah. been uh, reports that the, um, the transplanted tissue uh, can uh, sort of produce Lewy bodies and become sickened as well. So uh, again, nine out of 10 times, we don't know what's causing it. It could be something like, I don't know, bad bad bacteria or like, you know, with this bacterial thing going on, um, and, or it could be a toxin in the environment. I mean, there's a Russian like weed that could cause it in horses, this yellow thistle, whatever that, um, all sorts of toxins out there, pesticides, rotenone, uh, is, a, is a component of some pesticides that has very similar structure to M- MPTP, which, um, we know can cause parkinson's in uh, people um, so there's there 's a lot unknown about the disease, but um, in terms of developing therapies, IPS cells for drug discovery are going to be huge. And uh, stem cell therapy has a lot of potential because, again, we're not trying to recreate the wheel, if you will. We're, we're delivering a small population of dopamine-producing cells to a very restricted region. And uh, it should provide motor uh, benefits. Uh, so... Uh, I think with that, uh, we've pretty much killed Parkinson's. We've covered every part of it, Yeah, I mean, there, right?
0: we really, we, so what we wanted to do, we hope, guys, and, and everybody, it's a lot of information. And, you know, we tried to give you a little bit about the disease, where it is currently with therapies, the limited ones, and, and you know, where it's going. I, I just want to make this one quick point, Joseph, in that these therapies that we spoke of, these stem cell therapies and the, and the others, these are not necessarily curative and that it will completely stop uh, Parkinson's disease. It will stop what's going wrong. At this point, when we're putting these cells and we're just trying to replace or back the function, these that we're talking about are more, you know, your cells are dying. You have Parkinson's disease. Let's see if we can help you and, and get some function back.
1: Yeah, so, um, with that, I think we should really wrap it up because, um, there's not, if we start talking more about, uh, alternative things and, uh, I know. Yeah, I know. but, you know, the, the, there's something to be said for it. I mean, the, this, uh, the data that I was citing comes from this Honolulu study of, you know, World War II veterans who they had complete records of and their symptoms and, uh, were able to do post mortem studies. So, there, you know, I, I think, um, some of the early diagnosis uh, will involve things like loss of smell or RBD and um, that REM sleep disorder and constipation. And um, they are even doing a sound project where uh, people. Uh, call in and the computer can scan and detect minute changes in, uh, Parkinsonian like voices. So I think, uh, you know, we're making a lot of progress. There's other aspects of the disease that we're really starting to incorporate, but I think chronic synucleopathy is a common, uh, uh, descriptor of the disease. And, um, stem cells will hopefully provide, uh, the therapy we need, um, to at least cure the motor behavior deficits. Uh, maybe not some of the depression and other things that can occur. Um, but in terms of the motor behavior uh, deficits, I'm really hopeful and I'm really excited about, uh, stem cells. Me me too.
0: Yeah. And I'm really glad to be a part of the whole field. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is an honor and, uh, we're very grateful to be doing it. Right. Uh, It's, uh, it's truly, it's awesome. Um, all right, man. So I think we can get a quick rant in real quick. Oh God! All right. Well, want to rant? Want to rant it up real quick? I'll give
1: a. I'll give a real quick rant about pipettes. <laughs> you, you know you know pipettes the little like uh plastic uh how would you describe oh, a pipette pets. yeah describe a pipette um you always see scientists little, holding these guns these little tiny like yeah gun. they look
0: like little handguns and we use it to pick up liquid <laughs> and then put liquid in other places it's like a liquid transfer thing right uh
1: and so they're these plastic ones and i hate it when they're stuck together so you pull one out and like five come out i hate that I really hate that. And so some companies I think have figured this out that they should separate the pipettes so that doesn't happen. And another thing I hate is when uh, people put them in the opposite direction and you pull it out and you know you get into a a zone where you're just opening up the pipette. And instead, it's backwards. I just hate that. This this is something really. Oh wait, different. you're
0: talking about the glass pipettes. No, I'm
1: talking about the the plastic ones that come in the packaging. Sometimes people put them in backwards, and so you pull it out, and instead of the cotton oh, part boy. facing you, the the tip is facing. Yeah, yeah. You, you I, get the
0: front, and you grab it, and you can't use it anymore. You yeah,
1: know, you so. can't use it because it's no longer sterile. And uh, this is if this is cell culture uh, one oh. Uh, very people out
0: there—they're they're definitely scientists out there listening. To know exactly what we're talking about. They hate when they reach for the pipette and they're in the wrong direction.
1: Yes, and uh, yeah. So if there are any vendors there, which we may rant about someday, please fix the the sticking together of the pipettes and um, anybody else. Put them in the right direction so that the cotton is you know ready to go into the
0: little accujet uh, handgun of ours. <laughs> AccuJet handgun. Only scientists can say they they work. They're working with the with a handgun in the hood. Does it? Uh, yeah.
1: Yes. It's a, it's it's very uh, geek geek uh, hood <laughs> related.
0: Oh my. Like... Yeah, so right, man, on that well, wrap. Listen, thanks for thanks for an informative, awesome episode. Let's take them out of here, and we will see them on the next. And you, my friend, on the next episode of the Stem Cell Podcast.
1: Yeah, and I promise it will not just be us next time. We'll uh, expand our horizons and keep it fresh with some great scientists.
0: Have a good one, man.
1: All right, Chris. Talk to you later, brother.